In March, the New York Times published an article titled, What's Behind the Middle-Aged Groan? Apparently, and I can attest to this, and many of you can too, I'm sure, as we get older, we tend to groan more when we change elevation. Want to pick up something? Ah! You know, we, we get up from our chair, oh! Sitting, standing, getting up, bending out of pain or stiffness or the need to exert a little more, like Sam did last week at the children's sermon, uh, we, uh, we, we just need to exert a little more than we used to. And there are several videos out there of toddlers imitating their parents' groans. So here's one of them, I hope. There's nothing like getting roasted by a toddler. Sometimes groans aren't in response to exertion, though. They're in in response to anguish, suffering, grief, or despair. When we cry, we often groan, too. When we're asked to articulate something, when we're feeling something really deeply, sometimes all that can come out is a grunt or a groan. We may groan inwardly at the state of our world, of our nation, our communities, our families, or ourselves. Or when our own toddler isn't behaving, we may groan. Not just for the thing, we may groan when we experience regret, not just for the things we did, but also for the things that we didn't do. Members of the Church of Rome may have been groaning too. While there hadn't been a definitive split between Judaism and Christianity at the time Paul wrote his letter, there was significant conflict. We know from New Testament and Roman sources that Christian teaching often provoked disturbances and riots. Surely, many families ruptured over the gospel, just as Jesus had said they would. And as we all know, family fights are the worst fights. Nothing can tear one's heart and soul like a family fight. In addition, Gentiles were attracted to the new Christian movement, which raised serious concerns for Jews about their Jewishness. In the Roman world, for, that, for their part, the idea of worshiping a crucified God was considered laughable. And when we, identity was at stake, who are you? What do you believe? What do you stand on? And when we feel under threat, questions of identity become more and more polarizing and rigid. They become either this or that, one or the other. So Paul is writing to a church that seems to be struggling with what it has been called to be. There is internal division, for sure. There is growing hostility from Roman authorities. And the church remains pretty small. If you wanted to find a great influential church, the church at Rome was not it. Not in 57 AD. There was no coffee bar. There was no basketball court. 
No plethora of programs and clubs and studies. Members met in each other's homes. They weren't among Rome's movers and shakers. Some may have been wondering if this Christian movement would endure, if Jesus was really coming back, or if it were destined for history's trash heap, along with countless other religious movements before it. So, what does greatness look like to a suffering church? What is the sign of God's grace in a suffering church? Greatness doesn't depend on numbers. It doesn't depend on programming or staff or the money in the bank. It doesn't depend on the number of families. And it sure doesn't depend on whether or not there's a coffee bar with a barista in the narthex. You know what greatness depends on? It depends on God's children crying out to God for help especially in their deepest moments of suffering. That's greatness. That is the sign of God's greatest grace. When we cry out to God when we are hurting. You see, when we suffer, when we groan, when we feel abandoned, even when we can't articulate a word to God, God's spirit is at hand. God's spirit is close by. Even when we don't feel anything, when we are numb, God's spirit is at hand. God's spirit groans with us with sighs too deep for words. Even a prayer doesn't depend a whit on our natural capabilities. When it comes to prayer, we're all incompetent. Even the best prayer among us That's a good thing, by the way. If everyone is bad at something, naturally, what do we have to worry about? What do we have to fear? People often don't like to do something because they're afraid they'll look stupid. We don't have to worry about that with prayer. And if the Spirit has blessed someone with the gift of putting words together, how could that possibly reflect negatively on us and what the Spirit has given us. Whether we can string two words together or not, it is the Spirit that prays through us. This is the same Holy Spirit that hovered over the waters of chaos at creation, bringing life when there was nothing. This is the same Spirit that filled the first human's lungs that hurled back the waters at the sea, that led the children of Israel through the desert, who covered Sinai with smoke and fire, who descended upon kings and prophets, who led Israel back from exile, who settled upon Jesus at his baptism and descended upon the church at Pentecost. Very same spirit. The very same spirit who did these mighty things is the same spirit who moves through our prayers today, turning our fumbling, clumsy words into glorious petitions worthy of God's hearing. Even if we only manage to eke out Father, that is the Spirit's work. 
reminding us that we are God's beloved children. And the Spirit does more than this, something even greater. Paul writes something that at first glance seems laughable. It doesn't seem to be true on the surface of it. All things work together for good, for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. That's quite a thing to write. He can't possibly mean that everything will always turn out well, or that the faithful will always prosper, or that we'll never suffer. Paul himself suffered a great deal. Everything hasn't always worked out for him. Paul's own mission work He caused conflict wherever he went. You can get more detail about that in the book of Acts. And in Acts and in the second letter to the Corinthians, we also get a glimpse of his deep, deep personal flaws. Paul knew what it meant to fail. But he still writes that all things work together for good for the one who loves God. So what does he mean? Perhaps it means even and especially our failures are used by God for God's purposes of bringing shalom to the world. Even our failures are used by God to bring God's shalom to the world. Perhaps especially our failures. After all, Jesus' career as Messiah ended in failure. There's no polite way to put it. He was executed on a Roman cross as a threat to public order. Yet God raised this failed Messiah up as our Lord, Judge, and King. In his life, death, and resurrection, God's Spirit brought life where there was only death. God's Spirit brought love where there was only hatred. And God's Spirit brought forgiveness where there was only sin. That's what God's greatness looks like. That's what God's grace looks like. And that's what God's love looks like. Nothing can separate us from God's love, folks. Nothing. Not even ourselves. The spirit of peace which Jesus talks about in our gospel reading will keep us rooted in the love of God by keeping us in the truth, even and especially in our sufferings. In our pain, weakness, and failure lies greatness and grace. Because in those things we learn that God's spirit is moving through us, groaning through us. God will never abandon us. Let's pray. Abba, Father, we often don't know how to pray. We don't know what to say, or we fear how we might sound. We are also anxious, anxious about being good enough or clever enough or capable enough. We also have anxieties about the state of the world and wonder whether there is any redemption for it and for us. But in your spirit, you have given us a sure and certain hope in Jesus Christ. Send that spirit always to work through our prayers, to keep us rooted in the truth, and to remind us of your love. 
Help us to be open to the Spirit's work among us so that we may grow into the redeemed people you have already declared us to be. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you.